bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to have this privilege and opportunity to gather together like this, to be united, like-minded, seeking your truth, loving one another as you command us to. We're just grateful and thankful for one another and also your word and your spirit. And most of all, Father, we're thankful for your son, uh, sacrificing him the way you did on our behalf. That unselfish love, the greatest expression we can cling to and learn from. And we just thank you for the gift of eternal life through him. We ask, Father, that you bless this message, that you guide us and teach us tonight by your spirit. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Why all the complexity and chaos, part three. So, um, Sunday was uh, quite a mouthful, so to speak. There was a lot to chew on. I uh, hope you were able to do that somewhat because there were a lot of principles to, to think about and to help you with big picture as we'll see again tonight, uh, which is super valuable to be able to put the pieces together on a big picture scale and um, allow that to change us, allow that to sanctify us, rather than our striving in our own flesh against sin and things like that. So it's going to be the same tonight. We're going to review some. Uh, the Spirit's added some scriptures. So sit up straight and listen to the Spirit. Kind of be open-minded. Open your mind right now and be like, okay, let me just hear and rely on the Spirit to uh, teach us. So again, it's no mystery where complexity and chaos in our lives come, comes from. Um, it's pretty obvious to those that are in the Word. We know God is a God of peace. And his gospel is called the gospel of peace. And if we believers have embraced the truth that God has offered us sinners peace forever with him through Jesus Christ, then we know the problem lies with us when life seems confusing or complicated. And that was the premise that was laid down for us on Sunday morning. And it started with a couple of questions. And questions are very powerful in helping us examine our own lives. So here's a couple that the Spirit gave us on Sunday, and I'll put them on the board for you. First of all, why am I miserable when God loves me so much that he gave me the risen Lord? I mean, take a moment and let that sink in. Why, we also might say, how can I be so miserable when God loves me so much that he gave me the risen Lord. It doesn't make sense that we believe that reality and that truth and we live a lifestyle of misery. We, we, we are missing or um, pushing aside the big picture. So also we had this at the beginning of Sunday. Why am I anything but at peace at all times in my life. If God did this for me and literally purchased eternal life for me at no cost, 
why? What, am, what do I have to worry about? What am I worrying about? What am I miserable, miserable about? And these questions, these are not questions for condemnation, but to help us see where we're thinking wrongly. Perfection is reserved for heaven. When we have no more sinful nature to deal with, and the very presence of sin is wiped away forever. All right, so we're not talking about perfection. We know we're going to sin and fail at times in this life till the day we die. But these questions might help us with our lifestyles to enjoy the peace that the Lord has destined for us, has given us, and to welcome God's sanctification process into our lives and our hearts rather than resisting Him the whole way. Let me say that again. These questions, hopefully, can help us with our lifestyles, the way we think, uh, to enjoy the peace that God meant us to enjoy, and to welcome God's sanctification process into our lives and our hearts, rather than resisting Him the whole way. Again, we're the ones that get in the way. This really is a lot simpler than it seems. So considering our recent lessons, God has warned us of the power of deception. And by His grace, He asked us if we're ready to go forward with Him. And now He wants us to honestly call out the reason for any confusion and chaos in our lives that's holding us back. We've discussed how on the board, sanctification takes time. And by God's grace... He gives to us when we're ready and even holds things back when we're not ready. And we trust Him. We have to trust Him. We know He has a reason for everything in our lives, even when He seems to be totally silent in our lives. That's the test, isn't it? Isn't that the test of faith, like, like Job's experience? When it seems God is totally silent in, in our lives and not quote-unquote, answering us, not answering our repetitive prayers. But yet, we know He's right there. And we know He has a reason for everything. And in fact, we know that's where we bring Him the most glory, when we have faith without seeing. And there are times that we might simply have lessons to learn that we won't learn any other way than if He leaves us alone. In our arrogance, we think we're right. How many times is that true? But we're usually wrong. And at times, God needs to let us be, even to sit in our own mess so that we learn the lesson. Many times we haven't quite yet, even though, oh, I've learned the lesson. Yeah, still arrogant. So we have to trust in His promises. We have to trust in His wisdom, that he always has a plan, and we know great truths from chapters like Romans 8, where he works all things together for good for those who love him, and that God is for us and not against us. Go to Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. See, while sanctification is taking time, Sometimes God answers us right away, sometimes He doesn't. But while that is taking time, we trust Him. 
And what do we trust? We trust His Word and we trust His promises. Romans 8, 28 through 31. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now pause right there for a second. There we see the positive law of reaping and sowing. Okay, we talked about do not be deceived. God is not mocked, right? Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. But it's the same in the positive. What do we have here? Those who love God, that's the sowing. Do we sow that relationship with God? Those who love God, God will cause all things to work together for good in their lives. There's the reaping. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, how could he how can you say he's not when you read those previous three verses? If God is for us, who is against us? So we need to take passages like this to heart. You have a destiny and promises from a God who cannot lie. So when we, when we don't think he's listening to us, when we think he's leaving us alone, he's not giving us what we're asking for, etc., these are the things we fall back on. These are the truths that can't be changed and are so wonderful and solid, they should give us peace in the middle of anything. So personally accept these kind of promises in this passage for yourself from your perfect and faithful Father in heaven. This is one of the staples of our faith. Placing your trust in the promises of God, knowing these things are true no matter what circumstances say, and therefore you're willing to wait to see his deliverance in his timing. You're willing to wait for his timing even because you know who he is. You know his promises. You know he can't lie. So that being said, we do all struggle at times in this life. We know that. That's not going to be perfect in this life. We never arrive in this life. On the board, this came out on Sunday morning. I put it on the board for you. Complexity and chaos are derivatives of sin. And we are prone to such things, being affected by the power of sin, even as believers. Why do we sin when we know it's wrong and it has negative uh, consequences or repercussions? And then furthermore, and more importantly, why do we sin when we know it displeases God our Father? We know these things are true. Yet we still fall into sin. The power of sin affects us. And this, this remains a mystery to a certain degree. Like we can give the academic answers. We know the answers. But the spiritual battle within is sometimes indescribable. Can I get an amen on that? The spiritual battle within is sometimes indescribable. We know the flesh bat battles against the spirit. The spirit battles against the flesh. So we won't do what we, we please, right? But, you know, <laughs> it's indescribable. We have our own battles. The way, the way it functions, the way it takes place in our soul, 
the way temptations work, the way that we get down on our knees and pray and ask for help. And it's even unique to each one of us, I think, to a certain degree, because we're all different and God knows us so well. But again, on the board, all these things come from sin. Any problems, any um, confusion, any complexity in our lives come from sin. And we're, we're prone to the power of it, being affected by it. So, we know one thing for sure, that sin is selfish. And God's love is not selfish. And that's why Pastor brought this out on Sunday. Sin is antithetical to love. Sin even reveals a lack of love for self, if you think about it. That's come up in our lessons. Why would we consciously do something to hurt ourselves? Why would we consciously do something to hurt others? And I'm talking about consciously, right? It's one thing when you you sin unknowingly and you hurt somebody unknowingly. A lot of sin, if you're honest, we do consciously. What are we doing? Right? We're sick. We have a disease in us called the sin nature. So we know sin is directly against the love of God. Sin is unloving no matter what kind of sin it is. And all sin misses the mark of God's love one way or another. As we saw on Sunday, on 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is kind. Love is kind, period. And that's why God hates sin. Sin is not kind or loving like He is. Sin is a direct attack on His very nature. Sin puts self first and ironically hurts self in the process. It's unloving in every way and to everyone. That's why God hates sin so much. It's against who He is. However, love is kind, always, to all involved. So go again to Galatians 5.14. Galatians 5.14. We're going to revisit the power of love and um, a couple other passages related to this passage we saw on Sunday. And how if we love, uh, we won't sin. It's kind of that simple. If we love, we won't sin. And again, I'm not talking about that we're going to be perfect because we won't love perfectly. But when we're living in God's love, we won't sin. Galatians 5.14 For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So there's a spiritual battle going on every day, as we know, in our heads. That uh, some days is brutal, some days we think we've got to figure it out. Some days we're in a pit. But this is the reality, and love is the solution to living in the flesh. On the board, we as believers have the freedom to place our eyes on the solution, love, or to keep our eyes on the problem itself, sin. 
And some of tonight is going to be about this, this principle that we choose which thing we focus on, uh, which thing we uh, entertain, um, which power to, to live in. We have the freedom to place our eyes on the solution, love, or to keep our eyes on the problem itself, which is sin. And if you put your eyes on God's love, in that moment even, you will not sin. Our Lord said, if you love God and love others, you don't need to worry about the rest of the law and where you fall, where you fall short. You don't have to worry about it if you love God and love others. We just need to stop focusing on sin and instead focus on God's love and then watch as God defeats sin in our lives experientially. Wouldn't that be great? Instead of you striving against sin and trying to do it yourself and trying to um, will it to happen, so to speak, how about you just focus on obeying the commands to love and be a bystander watching God take the power of sin out of your life? And before you know it, you're no longer a slave to that thing you're always a slave to. That's how sanctification works. But where do our eyes have to be? can't be on sin. They've got to be on the solution, which is God and His love. So think about it. If every moment of every day you were enjoying and contemplating God's love and sharing that with others, would you even think about sinning? If you were living in God's love and sharing with others in a given day, let's take one day at a time here, you're living in God's love, sharing with others. Are you even going to think about sinning? Good overcomes evil, remember. And let's look at this familiar passage again. And as we do, think of evil here as sin and think of good as love. Okay? Think of evil as sin and good as love. And there's no greater good than love. So this could be one application for this verse on the board. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, for example, sin, but overcome evil with good, for example, love. Just something to think about. We might say only God's love has the power to overcome sin in our lives. Do not be overcome by evil, for example, sin, but overcome evil with good, for example, love. As we've studied over the years, love is what changes people. Love is what changes people from the inside out. Both yourself and not being a slave anymore to the things you, you always were a slave to, and it changes others. From the gospel on through. Go to Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. 35. So we're on this idea of obeying the commands to love and how that ends up fulfilling the whole law, which means we don't break the rest of the law when we live in love, which means we don't live in sin when we live in love. Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. 
The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So if man could love perfectly, the whole law would be fulfilled. But obviously man couldn't. That's why Jesus came. They tried that for quite a number of years. But this is the truth. If you could live perfectly in love, you would... The law and the, and the prophets are fulfilled. There's not a problem at all in sight. Paul expanded on this truth that the Lord laid out for us in Matthew 22. Go to Romans 13, 8. Romans 13, 8. Again, we might say only God's love has the power to overcome sin in our lives. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 13.8 Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you didn't even know these commands in verse 9, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If you didn't even know those commandments, it wouldn't matter because you're living in love. And love does no wrong to a neighbor in verse 10. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So living in the sphere of love Sin's power over us wanes. It decreases. It never totally goes away in this life, but it decreases. More and more and more, the more we live in the sphere of God's love. And then the less we hurt ourselves and others and God in the process. Now let's pause and remember, God may want the process of deliverance to take time. This has come up a couple lessons now. Even learning how to love God and love others takes time. Amen? I mean, some days, I know I struggle with it quite a bit. I'm like, Lord, help me. Figure this out. Give me more faith. But God has it take time in us on purpose. Maybe we just can't stand it all as well, all in one shot. We usually need the process of deliverance to take time. And the realities of life present some real stumbling blocks, as we know. Some real tests, let's call them. And God knows when only time itself will allow you to be ready for the next step. So again, we have to just trust Him. For example, on the board, this came out on Sunday, why God waits. If God decided to deliver us immediately from whatever self-inflicted pain we endure, we might never learn our lesson. And God's a good father, so he wants to teach us. And he knows if he just fixes it that we're going to do it again because he knows us, right? Maybe that's not always true. In that case, he might heal you right away from something. But he knows if you're going to fall into the pit again. So he's like, I got to let you sit there. And that's good. That's, that's good, even though it's uncomfortable. 
we might need to suffer in a situation to humble us and allow us to truly be delivered and set free one day. I don't know about you, but I'd rather suffer in a situation for years even if I know I'm really going to be delivered and set free one day from it. Like truly, you know what I mean? Not halfway, not pretending that he truly delivers me from it. Whatever you got to do, God, right? And here's another supernatural thing to ponder. God magnificently balances honoring man's free will with his sovereign grace. I mean, this is another thing, a supernatural thing that we cannot, you know, picture all that's going on in our souls, the way he's interacting with us, the way he's influencing us, the way we're responding, and so much more. God magnificently balances honoring man's free will with his sovereign grace. He so masterfully allows man's free will to function, and yet, at the perfect time and in the perfect way, he intercedes for our ultimate benefit, right? He works all things together for good for those who love God. So how does he do it? That's one of the great mysteries. How does he allow, truly, man's free will to function and intercede at the proper time for our benefit? But he does. He's good, he's powerful, and he's patient. And this includes God's discipline as our Father, which is perfect in strength and timing for his children. Think about that too. God never gives us too much to bear. He never exasperates his children, like the scripture says, don't exasperate your children. Don't push them too far where they get despondent or lose heart. God knows exactly the line he can push each one of us to. That will give us enough pressure, right, to, to adjust and not too much to quit or be despondent. That's his perfect fatherly discipline, his perfect strength and timing for his children. So thank God for discipline, right? Because God knows you wouldn't be on the narrow path anymore if he didn't discipline you. Me too, me too. You know what I'm saying. But thank God for his discipline. It's extremely valuable. While we're in it, can, it can be very difficult. But if we keep the big picture in mind, such as the fact that God causes all things to work out together for good for those who love him, then we'll see the light at the end of the tunnel and we'll never lose hope. So think about this. This comes back to faith. This comes back to basics. And this comes back to, most importantly, the big picture on the board. If we always keep the big picture in mind, then we will never lose hope. You will never be, and again, we all fail. I'm talking about if you live in this thing, this is what's going to happen in a good way. If you keep the big picture in mind, we'll never lose hope. We'll be perplexed but not despairing. Back to that verse. Why? Because we know God is good and we know God is love. And he's making you into a masterpiece of his love. What do we just see in Romans 8, 29? He's making you into the image of Christ, who is love incarnate. That's what he's making you into, you and me. By grace, by patience, sanctification takes time. But that's why he's got us here, right? Why didn't he just save us and take us home? Why is life, on average, for most people, and God knows everything, but 
70 or 80 years. Why, why do does most, most people need that time? Because there's a process that has to take place. And God's patient. And God's loving. And we can go on and on and on. But again, on the board, if we always keep the big picture in mind, we will never lose hope. Always holding on to this big picture, God's discipline will never be too much to bear. But instead, we will look forward to the fantastic results in us. The final product, what he produces out of it all. So go to Hebrews 12.4. Hebrews 12.4. Some of you might know where we're going with this, but this is a wonderful passage to read again and again. Whenever we feel we're under discipline or God's silent with us or whatever, we should be like, okay, there's, something, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel with God. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing the fruit one day, Lord. I trust you. It's really quiet down here right now. You're not saying anything to me. And you're leaving me in this mire, but um, I'm not going to give up hope because that would be silly. I'm, losing, I'm not going to lose the big picture. Romans 12.4 I'm sorry, Hebrews 12.4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. I was thinking, by the way, right here, we complain, don't we? But who's the only one who resisted to the point of shedding blood in striving against sin? I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat drops of blood resisting the temptation to run away and live in fear. But that's not us. We haven't done that. (laughs) And you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, that's our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. This passage blows my mind every time I read it. What do you mean? (laughs) Lord, what do you mean, right? That we might share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Does anyone listening to my voice right now not want this? You're probably an unbeliever if you don't want this, if you don't care about this. But if you're saved, you appreciate Christ's loving sacrifice for you, and you want His will and His victory to come forth in your life like fruit. And that's what this says will happen. From what? Discipline. From a loving Father that's perfect, but discipline. So again, we have to look at the big picture and look at the final product that's going to come out of the end of the the tunnel we're in. 
It's going to happen. Are you going to go kicking and screaming and resisting his will? Or are you going to surrender in your daily walk and love? So hopefully you're willing to see him work in your life. You're willing to see him work in your life, including through these things. God's discipline is in addition to us reaping what we sow by the grace of God. It's painful at times, but it's truly good, and it's for our good. So when's the last time you actually thanked God for the following truth, knowing that it literally saves you from self-destruction? Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. When's the last time you thank God for that? God only knows where you'd be right now. He'd probably be dead already at age eight. Who knows? You'd be dead because there were no parameters. There were nothing, no boundaries and nothing kept you in. Nothing. You reaped nothing from your bad decisions and you destroyed others and yourself to the point of death even. In our stubbornness, in our selfishness, which is the opposite of love, we would completely destroy ourselves without God's boundaries. It's just like, you know, it's just like when you're a kid, right? And you, while you're a kid, okay, let's just say while you're under 18, let's say, you don't appreciate the discipline from your father or your mother. You don't appreciate it. It doesn't seem valuable. It seems just a pain in your butt and you want to do things the way you want to do things and you're not that bad and all that. But then when you're past 18, maybe into, well into your 20s, I don't know, you start to appreciate what they did and the boundaries they gave you and some of the discipline even. So your viewpoint changes, right? What did you do? You grew up and you looked at the big picture and you were thankful that they helped you or kept you from destroying yourself in one way or another. So on the board, we thank God for consequences. Thank God. <laughs> we know there are consequences for sinning, and it's good, thank God, we know there are consequences for sinning. And at the same time, we know we won't be perfect. But God wants us to see the truth. That's what's been coming out these last couple lessons. God wants us to see the truth and claim it. Not be, whatever, in denial or ignorant of it. On the board... God wants us to take responsibility for our sin and not be blinded to the fact that sin is the reason for our misery. In one way or another, it is. Even when you don't see a direct connection, there's a connection somewhere. Sin is the cause of all chaos and complexity in this world. And God is saying to us, are you willing to own yours? Are you willing to own yours? That's all. I want you to see the truth. I don't want you to be ignorant of it or living in denial where um, you're living in a, in a false reality even. Again, on the board, God wants us to take responsibility for our sin and not be blinded to the fact that sin is the reason for our misery in one way or another. And when you see this principle, this came out on Sunday. I just put it on the board for you a little differently, but... Same principle, 
when you see this, don't just think of overt sins. That's what I found myself doing on Sunday morning. I'm thinking of the, the obvious sins, the overt ones, right? And huh, am I guilty? Where am I? Am I, am I failing right now, you know, in this area? But don't just think of the overt stuff. How about the mental attitude sins and the sins of the tongue that we have? How about the doubt and the worry and the fear? Those are sins that lead you to what? What are we talking about? Misery, chaos, complexity. Those are sins. You could be, quote unquote, good. <laughs> you could be uh, not hurting others, um, not doing obvious things that people can call out or you even call out, but you're living in doubt, worry, and fear in here. And those are sins that lead you to the path of misery. How about verbal sins? How about gossip and slander? You might not even realize you're doing it. You might be turning a blind eye because you like to gossip so much. So you're like, this isn't really gossip. I'm going to say it anyway. And you say it anyway. Gossip, slander, um, coarse jesting. How about lying? You can get so used to lying that you don't think you're lying anymore. It's true, right? <laughs> Got to get probably everyone say amen to that one. Partiality. How about partiality that you show to others, even in your mind? Maybe not even overtly the way you treat them better than others because you like them better. Maybe even just up here. That's a sin. These are all sins that lead us to misery in our own souls. And God wants us to claim them without apology or excuses. To repent and move forward in love. So what also came out on Sunday is that God wants our consciences to always be alive and active. Uh, not living in willful ignorance, but listening to the spirits knocking on our souls, convicting us of good and evil also. Listen to your conscience on the board. Deliverance begins with you making the connection between your sin and your misery. As the Spirit's knocking, saying, um, that was your fault. You are involved in that, etc. And you ignore it. You're basically saying, I don't want freedom. Basically. I want to stay selfish. Deliverance begins with you making the connection between your sin and your misery. As came out on Sunday, we're going to sin. But we don't want to develop a hard heart towards it or be indifferent towards it, or play the, play the blame game. It is so easy, and I've seen this in my own soul, and that's why I'm sharing, it is so easy to think, or to even be on the right track, so to speak, listening to your conscience, for example. And then the next day, you stop listening to it. You, you get a little mute, you get a little deaf, willfully deaf. And you say, it's not that big a deal. Like, isn't that the battle? Isn't that, it should be the battle for the believer. Listening to the Spirit versus not. We're going to sin, but God doesn't want us to develop a hard heart toward it or be indifferent, to be unrepentant, or to play a blame game. Those things won't lead us to the freedom that Christ died for, that He wants us to live in and experience. So this came from Pastor on Sunday on the board. It's one thing to sin... It's another to fail to repent of it because you refuse to call it out for what it is. 
or you refuse to identify it as the root cause of every bad issue in your life. We're all going to sin. Are we willing to claim it? To confess it when necessary? To repent of it? And be an adult, like so to speak. Be a, a mature believer in Christ. Act that way. If you refuse to listen to the Spirit's conviction and you choose to stay in a certain sinful lifestyle, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You will suffer some form of misery in your life. But instead of being the stubborn teenager that stays in the sin, that keeps disobeying, and has to keep reaping what he sows, instead of doing that, how about seeking godly sorrow? How about getting on your knees in your soul and seeking godly sorrow? And do it now if you need to. It's never too late to repent and turn back to God in humility. And that's what the Lord's saying. He's like, stop playing games. Make the connection on the board. It's never too late to repent and turn back to God in humility. If you're still alive, God is eagerly waiting for your return to His plan, so to speak. Go to 2 Corinthians 7.10. 2 Corinthians 7.10. If you're still alive, God's been patient, and He's waiting for you to return. He's eagerly waiting for you to return. To repent in the area of your life that you're playing games in or living in denial. 2 Corinthians 7.10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation or deliverance. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So in other words, let repentance lead to life in you. God wants you to have life, like true life, His life, freedom, love. Let repentance lead to life in you, as we know from Acts eleven eighteen. That's God's design or plan for us as He transforms us into the image of Christ. Another point of reflection on Sunday was this. A person who thinks wrongly about sin is usually focused on the penalty of it. A person who thinks wrongly about sin is usually focused on the penalty of it. So in other words, it's one thing to be a kid who apologizes because he got caught. And we've all been there. That's where we all start, right? Because we have sin natures. We all start there without the Word of God training us. It's one thing to be a kid who apologizes because he got caught. It's another thing and a much better place to be a kid who apologizes for the wrong itself because their disobedience hurt their father or their mother. He apologizes because the disobedience hurt their father or mother. There, you see, love is the motivation for apology, not self-preservation, not covering my butt. Love is the motivation for the apology. That's what God wants us to be. So on the board, uh, matured in love, or this should say maturing in love, God wants us to elevate our thinking. To stop being the immature child that only worries about what will happen to him, the repercussions on self. 
and instead to grow up and realize how much God loves us and believing that in our hearts, we don't want to let him down. In other words, we love him in return. As in Genesis 39.9. Go to Genesis 39 verse 1. Again, maturing in love. God wants us to elevate our thinking, to stop being the immature child that only worries about what will happen to him, the repercussions on self, and instead to grow up and realize how much God loves us and believing that in our hearts, we don't want to let him down. We love him in return. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Well, 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 that sounds like Romans 8.28 to me, doesn't it? God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. Look what it says at the second half of verse 3. The Lord caused all that Joseph did to prosper. The Lord caused that. Why? Joseph loved God, as we're going to see. And you reap what you sow. Look at verse 4. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there, with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. So Joseph obviously is blessed by God here, by grace, right? Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And then notice verse 10. As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. Now ask yourself the question, what daily motivated Joseph not to sin? This was not a one-time temptation or test. This was a daily test. What daily motivated Joseph not to sin in this area? Was it self-preservation or was it love for God? If it's self-preservation, there's no power in that. But obviously, power is in the love of God. That's the motivation that changes your heart to begin with, right? From the inside out. And then guess what? You don't want to 
sin against God. Like in verse 9. Second half of verse 9. How then can I do this great evil and sin against God? His concern was God, not himself. So again, on the board, maturing in love. God wants us to elevate our thinking, to stop being the immature child that only worries about what will happen to him, the repercussions on self. And instead, he wants us to grow up and realize how much he loves us. And believing that in our hearts, we don't want to let him down. We love him in return. So, in the last 10 minutes here, let's just do a little bit more review from Sunday. We're not designed by God to function in fear, like a child fearing punishment. That's, that's when we're immature. That's, that's, that's the immature response. We haven't grown up yet. We're designed by God to be motivated by His love. To be motivated by His love. And again, this takes time. You know, guilty is charged. That's what he wants for us, though, to come to a place maturing in love that we're motivated by his love and even overwhelmed by his love. So that's our primary motivation. But fear, that's like a child response. That's the wrong motivation. That's not what a parent wants for their child, really. It has to start there. But fear, remember, is a tactic of, uh, a tactic of Satan. And it's tied to death, not to life. Not repentance that leads to life. Fear is tied to death. Yet love conquers all, even putting fear in its place. On the board, again, we know 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected or matured in love. Fear and love are really opposites. Uh, they're not meant to live together in our souls. So if you habitually live in fear, something is wrong with your perspective. You've lost the big picture. You've lost faith in the promises of God who cannot lie. Again, if you switch your eyes, or if we switch our eyes onto His love, each and every day, we won't have time or the desire to live in sins like fear and worry and doubt. They'll fade away because love overpowers sin, just like the light of the sun overpowers darkness. And, you know, in the Bible, <laughs> there's not too many things in the Bible where it says God is something, but two of them are God is light and God is love. So connect those two. Will we focus on the light of his love that has the power to overcome darkness, namely sin and evil in our lives, experientially? If so, sin has no chance of controlling our lives anymore. And that's the key word, controlling, dominating, being a slave to. On the board, why the complexity? God is the source of peace, not confusion. Complexity is the result of man's sin producing worldly fruit, including worldly sorrow. As sin compounds, complexity increases. 
However, godly sorrow leads to repentance that saves and delivers towards simplicity, as in 2 Corinthians 11.3. More sin in our lives leads to more complexity. More love in our lives leads to more simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. More happiness, more peace, therefore. And this came out on Sunday too. I put it on the board for you. Think about simplicity as a destination that we're heading towards. I should say as, not is. Think about simplicity as a destination that we're heading towards. That's where peace lies. You know, and in this crazy world with technology, it's not as easy a place to find, to get to. But you know what? God provides. He provides this church. He provides the website, which is awesome. He provides and feeds us in so many different ways that they couldn't be fed. So think about that, too, as, as much more complicated and, and complex and um, crazy the world is right now. We also have much more available to us, much easier to fight the battle. But anyway, on the board, think about simplicity as a destination that we're heading towards. And is there anything simpler and more pure than God's love? That's what we want to be. That's what we want to arrive at as our motivation. And yes, timing is a key, and willingness and readiness are all in play. But God's saying to us, let's go. Come do this with me. Are you going to trust me? If you're not ready yet, I'll be there waiting. But um, while I'm honoring, honoring your free will, I'm eager for you to see the light of my love and embrace it. And then watch me squash the power of sin in your life. And you'll be overwhelmed by the power of my love. That's where he's been taking us for a while. And love can overcome all things. Remember at the end of Romans 8. Love can conquer and overcome all things, including your struggle with sin. If we let it. So, just a couple more points of review here. I'm not going to be able to finish my lesson, but why all the complexity and chaos? We've clearly come to the conclusion that it's man's sinfulness that's in the way. And for a visual aid, we went back to the fall of man in the garden. We ended Sunday with some big picture perspectives to consider. That should get you thinking. All right, on the board, before, before the fall. While this battlefield called life is like a boiling cauldron of chaos and confusion, what we must understand is that it was never like that in the Garden of Eden before the fall. It wasn't until the serpent deceived Adam and Eve that complexity, confusion, and chaos entered the scene. It didn't even exist. Without sin entering the picture, there was none of that. There was no strife in life. And on the board, a primary fruit of sin is confusion. Loss of perfect peace. A confused person is never totally at peace. They're opposites. The perfect example of this is back in the garden. After the fall, when we ask that fundamental question, why the complexity and chaos, we must go back to the garden where perfect peace was destroyed by sin destroyed right more than we more than we experience sin destroying our lives because we're born in sin talk about destruction so take that reality in 
and then apply it to your own life, how it affects your life on a daily basis if you allow it to. So on the board, choose peace or chaos. And, and think of lifestyle with me, okay? Not perfection, but lifestyle. Choose peace or chaos. 1 Corinthians 6.12 All things, Paul said, are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. You know what this means? You can be mastered by something good. And you can be mastered by something that's not sin on the surface. For example, simple example, watching television. That in itself is not a sin. If you are mastered by that, you are now sinning. You are controlled by it. And the second verse, 2 Peter 2.19, part B. For by what a man is overcome, by these he is enslaved. That's what God doesn't want for us in this world, in this life. That's where sin destroys your life and your peace and casts you into chaos and confusion before you know it and your head's spinning and you don't know how to get out. It's the reason Christ had to come and receive such a harsh judgment if he was going to save us. If you think about it, it's the reason there's a hell a place of eternal separation from God. Talking about sin itself. And sin robs people from experiencing God's love. We'll close with this point. This came out on Sunday. Sin is the great robber of love. For when we sin, we are estranged in the sphere of love experientially. When we sin, we are thinking as Satan thinks deceptively. When's the last time you thought about that? When you sin, when we sin, we are thinking deceptively like Satan, regardless of the area of sin. And what does sin do? The worst thing that it could possibly do to us, and that is rob us of existing and enjoying in the love of God. And without the love of God, we don't got peace. We don't have power. We don't have anything good. So rest on that, you know, rest in God's love. If we rest in God's love, sin will not control us. It won't be able to because the power of God's love is too great. And that's where the peace lies that God has planned for us. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your grace and your spirit guiding us and teaching us and hopefully opening our hearts and minds, Father. Help us to continue to be humble before you and see the big picture and never lose hope because of who you are, your faithfulness, your love. We thank you for all you do for us, Father, and we ask that you help us bring these truths out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask that you open their hearts and their minds as you give us opportunities with them on a daily basis, Father. And we know you'll fill our mouths by your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. Thank you.